This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am happy to have Heidi Hunter with us today. She is the VP of Product Innovations at Ideology. And for those of you in the financial services space, you probably know who Ideology is already. They are one of the leading uh, consultants and, uh, and, and people who are working in the Know Your Customer space. And know Your Customer compliance is a big deal in fintech. So uh, I'm, I'm really eager to talk with Heidi today and see what she's got to say and see what's going on in her world. Heidi, how are you? Hey, doing really good. Thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always nice to talk to a, a fellow Atlantan and uh, especially someone who's working in financial services and uh, obviously in product innovation. You know, I feel like we intersect in like four different levels. So um, what are you seeing in your world? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think from an industry standpoint, one of the things that's been pretty interesting to watch has been the shift to digital. Um, and what I mean by that is we have a you know, for the longest time, if you were bringing new innovations to the market, you had to consider that the population was bucketed as to what they were going to accept, right? So folks over a certain age group, um, they're going to not accept certain processes or workflows, right? Because it's not something that they're comfortable with. Sure. But obviously with shelter in place and COVID, it's a whole new world. And we have people exposed to new types of technologies. They're becoming accustomed to it. Um, my father in particular, he, he works in the trade. He's very anti-tech, but I mean, he used Google pay the other day. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, you know? So <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's a changing world. So what that means is it's opening up new opportunities, I think for businesses to really innovate and bring exciting offerings to consumers and, and, you know, offer payment solutions and financial service solutions that are fully digital and, and have a higher acceptance rate of it. Yeah, you know, I had a conversation recently with some other friends about um, the digital transformation in banking and what that means for branches. People are less likely to go into a branch now because they've lived for a year without going to a branch, and now they can see they can do things online. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that in your space, you know, you're focused on know your customer and and, and people, uh, or, or I should say, the institution knowing who they're doing business with. How does that become more difficult when you don't have that physical contact? You don't have the ability to actually look somebody in the eye. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of challenges that it presents. And I would say, you know, if you're not physically engaging with someone, then you need to have a solution um, or I guess a workflow in place that's going to be able to detect fraud at all different kinds of layers because it's going to come to you in many different ways. So I think what, you know, we want, we want folks to, you know, be thinking about, oh God, I'm sorry, stop. Let me say that again. <laughs> Can you ask the question and I'll, I'll go back to it again. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. So in, in this new kind of digital world where you can't, um, you can't see your customer, you, you don't have that physical contact with them. Like, how does that change the way that you think about verifying identity and, and knowing who you're doing business with? Absolutely. It, it definitely is something that, you know, we want, we want to address with uh, lots of layers, because I think, you know, in an in-person transaction, you're establishing a physical relationship with someone immediately. You can take in things like a photo ID, proof of identity, right? And in a digital space, you need to have 
um, the ability to verify someone, give them a very low friction experience, but also address the fraud that's going to come to you in many different ways. So, you know, the things that we've been focused on, the things that folks need to be thinking about is, you know, being able to verify not just the individual, the data attributes that they give you, but look at the device that they're coming from. Think about the email address that they gave you. Does it have tenure? Does it have risk associated with it? Looking at, you know, their IP network even. So this fraud can come in from so many different places. And so I think the challenge is figuring out a way to establish that trust still when someone is, is not coming in, but at, you don't want to do that at the cost of giving them an experience that's really difficult to onboard. Because right. in a digital environment, right, it's very different than a branch. You walk into a branch, you're probably not going to leave that branch. You're going to finish that. You're going to finish that application and walk away with an account. Versus if you're on your phone or your PC, you can just close, move on, and go to the next person who's offering the same service. So I would right. imagine, right, there's a lot of competition. So you need to have, um, you know, a system in place, a workflow that you know green lights good customers with the least amount of friction possible finds the fraud but still make sure that you're meeting all the requirements that you have right so in a way you know you can get more information about somebody because you know their their location goip i mean to a certain point right um you've got information about their email address you can see a lot more about somebody um, to authenticate things so there might be more signals it sounds like yeah. that could help you identify fraud and make that a seamless experience for people. Absolutely. Because, you, because it is digital, you can verify things like that the phone number belongs to them. You can make sure that there's no concerns with activity on that device recently. Um, there's all kinds of, of ways that fraudsters try to penetrate, you know, a, a system and figure out how they can get accounts. But right. by having, by being able to bring all these insights together, you can get a really clear picture that this, you know, first and foremost, you meet your obligations, you know, um, from a regulatory standpoint to open the account, but you can layer in all that other insight on top of it and get a really clear sense that this is the person right. to, that's trying to open the account, right? And, and it's not someone who's trying to do it on there, you know, with a stolen identity. Yeah. So uh, how do you and your team go about um, innovating in, in your product and in your service? What are you looking at and how, how do you make decisions on what you're going to offer to your customers? So for us, definitely, it's a really we address it in many different ways. Um, what I love about the way that ideology approaches product innovation is we are a very data-driven company. So everyone in my department is responsible for monitoring the system in some capacity and doing constant data evaluation. Uh, you've always got to be looking at the data that you're getting for, you know, increase in certain types of flags, expansion of new flags, new, new insights that need to bring, you know, that need to come to light. Um, so data, I think, is pretty critical. You always need to be evaluating it. You always need to be looking for opportunities. Um, I think the other, the other thing that's really critical is not making you know, decisions in a black box. So we solicit feedback from our customer success team, who's frontline with the, um, all the customers that we're working with. So we sit down with them on a monthly basis, and we talk about what's working, what's not working, what feedback mm -hmm. are you getting? And likewise, Jay, we do the same thing with our sales team because obviously they're the people that are, you know, they're having to sell against our competition. So what are the pain points that you guys have with solution or are there things that we're not doing that we need to start looking at? And our sales guys are fabulous because they attend conferences and they are constantly talking to prospects. And so they're very knowledgeable about the industry. So I think it sometimes in product, you can get tunneled down to where you're just focused on, you know, we have these high level roadmap goals that we need to hit and you just keep pushing towards it. But 
ours may change. You know, we've, we've put together roadmaps and they've completely derailed because the market has driven us to a different direction or the data has brought something to light. So I think being flexible, being conscious, being communicative, looking at the data, those things are all really critical to bringing things to the market that are going to be what people want versus what you think is, you know, what people want. You can't make yes, Yes. So it sounds like you're constantly validating ideas and, and gathering ideas from multiple sources, right? You're looking at the real data of what's happening in the network and what's happening in real time. Mm-hmm. You're talking to customers, you're talking to the support teams, you're talking to the sales teams and kind of triangulating all of those things to figure out what's going to be the next step. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think in a lot of other organizations, what I really love about ours is I've, I've seen and, and experienced in my own work life that a lot of times the innovation side is driven by just technology, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's driven just by sales. And I think those are dangerous uh, precipices to kind of be on the edge of because you can get to a place where that decision that's being made is really just being driven by one, you know, one thought rather than a collaborative thought. And I right. think for me, the things that have been really beautiful that we've developed and the things that I really love is when all these things come into alignment. Sales is talking about, you know, we're seeing this, customers are requesting this, and then we see it in the data. And when we can just nail it, some of the best innovations we've made have come when that triangulation is just, it's spot on. Everybody meets in the same place. So yeah. when we get those validations, those for me are really exciting. Yeah, for sure. And like, that's, that makes it easy to do your job, right? Because you've got three signals that are pointing in the same direction. But yeah. what about when you've got conflicting information or you've got to make a decision based on, you know, some signs are pointing one direction, but other signs are pointing a different direction. How do we decide which way to go? It's tough. And I, I you know, I would say a lot of times we trust our gut. We have to make a decision. Um, I'm not always right. And my team's not always right, but we do our best. Um, I think a lot of times though, I think the thing again is flexibility because sometimes, you know, you were getting this conflicting information and, you know, the, the first time that that conflict arises, it's actually sales that is correct. And other times it's the customer and other times it's the data. So we have to, you know, try to make that judgment call and take into account the different factors that we know about it. So some of the things that we'll look at before we make that call is, you know, time to market. What do we have um, from a standpoint of, uh go to market strategy, right? Does sales actually have things lined up that we know we're going to book and bill so we can start going on this straight away. But also too, you know, for us, we're very focused on making sure that we are um, consumer, very conscious of protecting consumer data and addressing fraud. So sometimes too, that, you know, preventing that fraud also needs to be a priority because while it may not drive revenue, a new revenue, right? New customer revenue, it makes the solution stronger for existing customers. So it's, it's yeah. definitely a balance, but that's why, you know, you, you have to kind of meet and go through the objectives as critically as you can, and then make that call about what's the best thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a recent conversation with Jose Coronado, who's running um, digital design at JP Morgan. And he was talking about, you know, and we've all seen this, this, the classic, you know, three circle Venn diagram of business technology and design and how they're always represented as these perfect square or perfect circles. And they're, you know, the same size and they overlap very beautifully, but we all know that that very, very rarely happens. So what are some things that, that you and your team 
think about or do or, uh, or, or talk about to try to make sure that no one of those things gets too big, like business isn't leading the discussion or design isn't leading the discussion, or how do we make sure to keep all those things in, in, in a balance and that we're making decisions that take that entire, uh, you know, the entire ecosystem into account? I think definitely being statistically driven and reevaluating how things have played out in the past is a really good way to help drive yourself forward. And so here's what I mean by that. We had a initiative that we believed was going to be really successful. We rushed it to the market. It was a new feature to our solution and it didn't get a lot of traction. Um, and so my question was, why? Why, why, you know, we were, product was very excited about this. We thought this was going to be really successful and, and it, it didn't happen. So, you know, I think going back and looking at the case history of the past, we talked to our sales team and asked, you know, why are we not selling this? And they gave us very specific feedback. You know, customers don't feel like they need it. Um, it doesn't have these specific points that we think would have made it sellable. It's, you know, too costly. So, you know, understanding that we made that call and it wasn't successful. We went back and reevaluated and tried to figure out, okay, how could we have prevented doing this and, you know, done better with this? So, it, you know, probably more of an intelligent design. We should have asked more questions. We should have tried to figure out how this would have been more successful from the jump rather than rushing it out. So I think reevaluating your failure points, we call this a post-mortem. We mm -hmm. do these post-mortems constantly, whether it's with, you know, something that wasn't as successful as we thought, whether it's something that needs to be revisited and made better so that it's stronger um, times where maybe the technology hasn't um, operated in the system the way that we expected it to, and, you know, that constant reevaluation, I think of where your failure points have been is the way to have a clearer approach for the future and make sure that you're not, you know, having that, that overlap expand too much one way or the other. Right. Right. Yeah. We see that, um, doing postmortems and then we do something called a pre-mortem is where we imagine, you know, a year into the future, we've released this, what went wrong? Right. You know, how, how might we prevent some of these things from going wrong in the first place? You know, let's try to uh, anticipate um, and find as many blind spots as we possibly can. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good way to think about it too, is like, what's the worst case scenario, right? If, if right. this doesn't go the way that we're planning, how do we avoid that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you are, pretty in tune with what's happening in, in financial services. You probably talk to a lot of folks and a lot of organizations and they've all got opinions about what's coming and what we need to prepare for. What do you see as the next, um, let's say the next six, 18, 36 months of what do we need to be thinking about in terms of creating uh, experiences for customers that they're actually going to enjoy and, and to separate us from the way that banking used to be? I definitely think that there is a place for the concept of a tokenized identity. Have you heard about this? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really think that a tokenized identity is probably going to be something to keep in mind, bear in mind, but I feel like we're moving towards that, right? For the longest time, your social security number was your universal identification. Right. Piece, right. Um, but it has been gathered, used, breached so many times. It really doesn't serve that purpose of kind of being that universal point for you. Um, right. I really think that the future that we're going to see is probably going to be a lot of acceptance of that tokenized identity and a usage of it. And if you think about it, it's, it almost kind of exists today to some capacity. And I believe it exists in your mobile device. Your mobile device is, is, has become an extension of you. 
Almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know anybody, it doesn't matter how old they are, that leaves their house without their phone. Right. And we do everything on it. We watch movies on it. We entertain ourselves with it, but we also pay our bills on it. We use it to pay. We use it to, um, you know, keep in contact with the folks we love, be on social media. Um, and I believe at some point there will be a methodology of a, a concept of you as an individual and it living on your phone and you using it to transact in almost every way possible. I feel like that's probably yeah. the future. So, so for those who might not be as familiar with tokenized identities and some of the things that are happening um, in, in terms of how we're going to manage identity in a, in, a, in a primarily digital world, lay the groundwork for that. And then let's talk about how that might um, make transacting between strangers even easier and safer. Yeah, absolutely. So the tokenized identity concept, um, I think there's a, if you go look these up on the internet, you can see there's a few companies that have launched initiative programs for this, and they're looking for beta providers to get involved and start helping develop these concepts out. So there's quite a few large um, Silicon Valley companies that are trying to rush to the finish line on this. But the basic premise of it is, is that you create um, on your device a, a a digital version of yourself, a digital holding of your identity. And what it is, is it would be um, other companies that provide identity verification services would verify you. So in my case, Heidi, living at my address, verified my social security number, and even adding in additional things like possibly, you know, bank account information, my photo ID, um, maybe my social content gets played into this as well. But it's a way for you to digitally um, basically hold your digital verification on your device and it would live, you know, as an app inside of your phone, or, you know, if you're an Apple user, maybe inside of your Apple account, your wallet. Um, but you would be using that to open accounts, to gain access to services, to pay for things. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, talk right now about, you know, what does that look like and, and how do we, how do we approach this and how do we have it be universally accepted by, everybody from financial institutions to signing up for Ubers and, you know, or to become an Uber driver, it, but it would basically be a way for you to um, have all of the information that formerly was on paper, but you have a digital version of it because you've, you've been verified through a company that offers this service and then you carry it with you at all times. Right. Right. And the, the tokenization part is that it, it, um, it's very, very difficult to, to, to fake. It's very difficult to hack. Correct. Yeah, very, very strong. Right, right. So um, yeah, there's a lot of detail in there. So we'll put some links in the show notes about you know, how, how people can learn more about what that means. So in the future, when you go to a store, like so let's say you go to you know whoever, you're going to buy some products online from, from somebody who's got like a Shopify store, for example. Mm -hmm. um, right now, you've got to create an account. You've got to enter all this information. You have to enter your credit card, your payment information. You've got to do all these things and all that stuff has to be validated and, and, um, and verified internally with multiple different systems. Mm -hmm. So we might be looking at the USPS to validate that that's a valid address. We might be talking to the card issuer to validate that the charge will actually go through to do a pre-authorization on the card. We might be doing a validation on the email address or doing some type of triangulation on the identity to make sure that this is not a fraudulent transaction. Mm -hmm. But with tokenized identity, you just do that once. And we know that this is a real thing. We know that we can trust this person. So in terms of what that might mean for kind of seamless transactions, if anyone's used Apple Pay or Google Pay, 
Like it just works. So mm -hmm. do you see that being kind of the norm that we're going towards is that we've got some form of, of, of identity authentication on kind of any e-commerce site that we can just go make it easy to pay? And how does that translate into the physical world? Do we just scan our phone at the register and we're good to go? Yeah, I do. I definitely see a payment application and making checkouts super seamless. There's so many components of this that could be brought in, but I also see that it could be, you know, with time, with expansion, be what you use to open a bank account. You present your tokenized identity and all of the verified credentials that are needed to open that account are there. Right. And you could use it for that. Um, we see, you know, I, I think there's a lot of application, maybe even things like signing up for training, educational services, registering for classes online. There's a lot of ways that this could be utilized. Sure. Um, and honestly, if you had asked me two years ago, if I would have thought that acceptance would have, would have been high on this, I probably would have said there's a certain generation I think this will work well for. I don't think it'll be universally accepted. But given the way that COVID has really shifted the mindset of people and what they're willing to accept digitally, seeing how easy it is to transact digitally, I really think that we're going to see a broader acceptance of this, but I do think it'll be something that will evolve with time. I think there will still be, you know, it'll take time, I think, for acceptance of this concept to ramp up. But I mean, just this, the identity space itself in the 10 years I've been in, it has changed drastically um, in terms of what people accept oh, yeah. and what people want to see. So for sure, for yeah. sure. So you mentioned opening bank accounts. So uh, last subject I'd like to get your opinion on. One of the other things that's come up in some of our previous conversations is the, the, the change to the way that banks are attracting customers and kind of banks are niching down, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we used to have you know, the major big banks. You had your Wells, your Chase, and your BOA and Capital One, those types of, of, of organizations. But now we've got all these little challenger banks and some of them are going really niche, right? Like the, here's a bank for pet lovers. Here's a bank for, you know, people who like to surf or, right. or, you know, people who are college students or whatever. And so how, how might this, um, this concept of, of, of kind of a tokenized identity and, and the ability to really validate who somebody is uh, enable people to kind of diversify where they get their financial services. So we might use, you know, one entity for a checking account, a different entity for a savings account, a different entity for a brokerage account, a different entity for their IRA and 401k, but all of those things could come together into one platform. How, how do you see that shaping out? Yeah. I mean, I think that that definitely will, I think that definitely could be, you know, the way that it really starts to expand out how people keep their money and, and what they utilize it for, because by you know, being able to manage all of that digitally and get access to it digitally, you know, rather than having to physically walk into the branch. Um, I think that it'll make it, it'll make um, folks able to get access to those things a lot easier. So it definitely could be that it, it opens up, you know, a competitive edge to the market and letting some of these challenger banks really be able to secure more of the customer base because that access would be easier. Um, right. And from the consumer's perspective, if enrollment is easier and they're not having to meet so many requirements of physically bringing in documentation and, and providing, you know, photo IDs and proof of residence, then it, if it's easier for them to gain access to those things, then they'll probably be more likely to enroll for, you know, many products rather than just one. Because I right. think that's really that's, that's the challenge, right, is, is the, the difficulty in, in having those things happen. And I think the success that you see 
um, not just within the financial services, but in general, is that the easier that onboarding process is, the more user-friendly it is, you're going to have, you know, folks that are going to be more attracted to it because of the simplification of it. Right. Yeah. So we're lowering switching costs by making it easier to validate who that person is. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Heidi, I've enjoyed the conversation today. Um, thank you so much for, for coming by and, and chatting with us. Um, if somebody wants to reach out to you and learn more about what you're up to and learn more about ideology, what's the best way to get in touch? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm happy to give you my email address for the show notes. Um, but you also too, if you want to learn more about ideology as a company, we uh, have a blog on our website. We're also on Facebook, LinkedIn at ideology, and you can visit our website at www.ideology.com. And you can awesome. see more about what we're doing there and, and what we're seeing in the industry. Great. We'll link all that stuff up. Thanks again. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right. Thank you. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.